turn the book of Judges with me. We're going to be studying the life of Gideon this morning. So I was thinking about this story. I remembered uh, years ago, before I had kids myself, I went to a, a t-ball game with some friends. They had a son who was playing in t-ball. And I remember when their son was about to get up to hit, his dad pulled him aside and he said, hit a home run, slugger. And, and I remember looking at this kid thinking, he's not a slugger. You know, I mean, and he's not going to hit a home run. It's just, this is not going to happen. And, you know, you, you could tell the kid wasn't thinking that of himself either. It was almost like he wasn't sure what planet he was on exactly, right? You know, he had to, dad found him the bat and put the bat right side up in his hands, got his helmet on, got him oriented, got him over to the, to the T, and then turned the right direction, to, you know, so he wouldn't hit it into the crowd. And, you know, so he, he gets up there and he pulls the bat back. And he looks off into the sky, right? And then he swings. He's not looking at the ball or anything. He just swings. And it's amazing. It's a miracle. He actually connected. Ball flies out into the infield. And everybody was stunned. There was a, a moment of just like, huh. nobody's. And then everybody starts cheering and yelling. And kid was pretty surprised, too. He just stood there. You know, he's just standing. And everybody's going, run, 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 run. And so he starts running, kind of zigzagging his way generally toward first. And, of course, he's safe because no one can catch or throw. In the game, you know, if you, it's, the scene is repeated every week down on Rock Prairie. If you want to see it, it's, it just happens. You know, and moms and dads are like, "All right, this is you know future Hall of Fame, Cooperstown. Here we come." I mean, you know, it's it's. But he's he's not a slugger. He doesn't think of himself as a slugger. And as I was thinking about that event, I thought, you know, that's a lot like us. That's a lot like us. God comes to us and he says, hit a home run, slugger. I think, oh, maybe not. Take this bold step of faith. You can do it, trust me. And we think, uh, God, do you know who you're talking to? That's the story of the life of Gideon as well. God comes to him and he says, hail, valiant warrior. And Gideon is anything but a valiant warrior. And yet God takes his life and he transforms Gideon into a valiant warrior. So we're going to look at the life of Gideon this morning and next week as well. Before we do, I kind of want to set the stage for you historically. I want to put this in context. There's a man named Abraham who was born about the year 2166 BC. He had a son of promise, Isaac, and Isaac had a son of promise, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were the patriarchs. And from their family, God said, I'm going to take this family, and I'm going to bless this family. And this family is going to be a blessing for all nations. This family is going to be the vehicle through which I reconcile men and women to myself. Well, that family grew and grew. It was eventually 70 people, and because of a famine, remember, they went down to Egypt. And while they were in Egypt, they continued to grow up to two million, or two million people. A nation, in a sense, within a nation, and the Egyptians forgot all the blessings that Joseph had brought to the nation of Egypt. They forgot about that, and they enslaved the Jews because they feared the Jews. And the Jews cried out to God and said, we are slaves here. God, rescue us. God sent a deliverer, Moses. And Moses, through the power of God, rescued them and led them out in what's called the Exodus, the way out. They're brought out of Egypt. They were brought into the wilderness. God gave them a constitution, which we know as the law. He formed them into a nation. He said, I'm going to bring you to a beautiful land, the promised land. 
land flowing with milk and honey, but you know, they went right to the edge of the land. They got there and they pulled back because they did not trust that God was powerful enough to conquer their enemies and bring them in. Because they pulled back, God said, all right, well, your generation that doesn't trust me, you're going to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years and then you will all die off and I'll bring the next generation in, which is exactly what he did. Moses died, Aaron died, Miriam died, all the elders died. That generation died from 40 years up. And God raised up a new leader, Joshua. And Joshua brought them into the promised land. Conquest took about seven years, and then they lived under Joshua's leadership for another 40-plus years. And then Joshua died, and we entered into the period we know as the Judges. About 1350 to 1050 B.C. 1050 is when Saul became the first king, and that's the period of the monarchy. So Judges lasted about 1350 to 1050 B.C. Probably the best description of this entire period in the history of Israel is a cycle of disloyalty. It's a cycle of Israel's continual disloyalty. God brought them into the promised land. He conquered their enemies. He blessed them. He blessed them physically with abundance in the land. There was grapes that grew They were able to make wine. Their crops grew. They had wheat. They had barley. They had grain. Their cattle grew. They had great prosperity physically. They had protection from their enemies. God blessed them. And in their blessing, they forgot that it was God who had done all these things for them. Instead, they turned to the local idols and they began to worship false gods. Because of their idolatry, God disciplined them. God sent surrounding peoples to come in and discipline them to drive them back to him. And they would cry out to God in their suffering. They would experience remorse, maybe some level of repentance. They would turn back to God. God would send a deliverer. We call those deliverers judges. They were primarily military judges. They were military and civil leaders. But they led the people in their battle against their enemies so that their enemies were conquered, pushed back again, and God blessed them once again, and they enjoyed God's blessing, and then they forgot that it was God who was blessing them. They turned to idols. God disciplined them. They cried out to God in remorse and regret. God delivered them and blessed them again. Then they forgot, and they turned to idols. And this is, this is the story of the whole book of Judges. Okay, that's what's transpiring as we read the book of Judges. Now, why is that? Why did they go through cycle after cycle after cycle. I'm going to give you three reasons. I want you to turn back to Judges chapter 1 with me in verse 27. The first reason is because they allowed enemies to remain in the land. Judges 1 verse 27. But Manasseh did not take possession of Beit Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. It came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. They allowed their enemies to remain in the land. And so you have pockets of areas that are conquered and then areas that are unconquered, pockets of obedience and disobedience. Where enemies are allowed to remain, they can rise up again in rebellion and fight against the people of God. So they didn't completely finish the task under Joshua. And their enemies became a thorn in their side. Second, anarchy ruled in Israel. 
We think of Israel as a nation, we think of it later on, but these were 12 tribes that were really separate. They were fragmented. There was not a unified communal commitment to obey God, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Instead, the theme verse of the book of Judges is this, 17 verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did exactly as everyone else pleased. And the result was idolatry. Idolatry infiltrated because the enemies were in the land, because people were not unified, they were doing just what they wanted. Idolatry came back into the land through these enemies, and Israel was led astray time after time after time. And when we reach Judges chapter 6, we are facing the fourth cycle of rebellion. Now, the people needed deliverance, but what did they need to be delivered from? In their minds, they needed to be delivered from surrounding enemies. But what they really needed to be delivered from was sin. They needed to be delivered from their own rebellion. We talked about this in the book of Jonah. Idolatry is not simply the images that are set up. It is the idols of the heart. Their commitment to find life somewhere other than the one true God, Yahweh. To trusting something other than Yahweh. And their hearts continually were pulled that direction because they are just like us. What they needed to be delivered from was themselves, sin, rebellion, disloyalty, and death. The enemies that oppressed them were just a symptom, simply a consequence of their rebellion against God. You and I live in the same setting. We need, first and foremost, personally to be delivered. We need deliverance. We need God to step into our lives and speak truth, that there is no life outside of him. And we need to turn to God and say, yes, thank you for Christ rescuing me from my foolishness and my sin. Thank you for forgiving the penalty of my sin. We need to be delivered. And then we need to turn around and we need to participate in deliverance. That is what God has called us to do, to be those who mediate the blessings of God to a world that lives in rebellion against him. It's exactly the same calling that Gideon had. Right? So in Judges chapter 6, we're facing the fourth of these cycles. I want you to read with me Judges 6 and verse 1. It says, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable. They came into the land devastated, so Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hands of all your oppressors, and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. You have not obeyed me. Who were the Midianites? 
We see that name, we kind of breeze right past it, but it's significant for the story. Write this in your margin. Midianites were descendants of Midian. Who was Midian? Well, Midian was actually the fourth son of Keturah, the concubine of Abraham. These are cousins. The Midianites were related to Israel. We see them popping up in Israel's history in several key places. The Midianites were nomads. They were uh, traveling traders. The Midianites were the ones who purchased Joseph from his brothers and then sold him into slavery in Egypt. The Midianites were the ones who joined forces with Moab and hired Balaam to curse Israel. Abraham's poor choices kept coming back. And they become a thorn in the side of Israel. And we're told in the story that they came in with their camels like locusts. They ate everything. They stole everything or they killed it. And so the Israelites are not living in their homes. They're not living in their cities. They're living in caves. They are oppressed. They are oppressed. And in pops our hero. Our hero Gideon, uh, who I would argue is uh, at best unlikely. I want you to read the description of him with me, beginning in verse 11. It says, The angel of the Lord came and he sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. Three characteristics of our hero that I want to point out. The first is that he is fearful. You'll notice in the story that Gideon is beating out his wheat in a wine press. He's beating out his wheat in a wine press. Uh, Just actually this spring, this wine press was discovered. It's not from Gideon's time. It's a Byzantine wine press. But you'll notice that the wine press is down in the ground. And there would have been a structure over top of the wine press. Why is that? Well, when you're making wine, you don't want dirt and sand and leaves blowing into your wine vats, right? So it's all enclosed. It's covered. In fact, in Gideon's day, the wine presses were down in caves, Okay. I've got a picture for you here of a, an olive press. It's not a wine press, but it gives you a sense of what a wine press might have looked like. It's down inside a cave in Gideon's day. This is where we press wine. Hey, where do you beat out your wheat normally? We've got to beat it out in the open, right? You gather your wheat, and then you beat it down, and then you take the wheat and you throw it up in the air. You need to do this on a windy day. You throw it up in the air, and the wind drives away the chaff, and the heavier grain falls to the ground. So you do it out on top of a hill, out in open, on a windy day, you do it for all to see. And where is Gideon beating out his wheat? Not a very effectively, but down inside a cave. Okay. First characteristic of Gideon, he is living in fear. The cycles of his life are dominated by fear. Have you ever been there? 
I think particularly of times when I've sensed God is saying to me, step out in faith and speak the gospel to that person. How do you feel when you you sense that? Sweat, (laughs) anxiety, denial. Surely, God, you're looking for someone else. Some other valiant warrior, some other slugger, other than me. God, you're, you're sovereign, and I believe in election. Therefore, someone else will come. <laughs> and I, I, I remember feeling that, that fear. Now, it, as time has gone on and I have, have grown in my faith, I, I will tell you, I still feel anxiety. But I also feel excitement. But I remember back feeling fear. And I will say, even now, I sometimes feel fear. If it's somebody that I, I know really, really well and I've never spoken the words of the gospel to them or somebody who's really, really close to me and I've never stepped out in courage and faith and told the words of the gospel, then, again, I'm cast back into that feeling of, of fear, which is exactly what Satan wants us to feel. To be paralyzed by fear, then we will not step into this rebellious culture and be deliverers. On behalf of God. Right now, at this stage of the story, Gideon is paralyzed. He cannot imagine stepping out of the cave, leading his people, and conquering the enemy. He's paralyzed by fear. Second, he is doubting. Read with me chapter 6 and verse 12 again. It says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. See, Gideon doubts himself, but he also doubts God. He doesn't see himself as a valiant warrior, but he also doubts God's presence. God, where are you? How, is, how can you say God is with us? It appears much more like God has abandoned us. And notice what he says in verse 14. The Lord looked at him and he said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? What God is saying in that verse is, Gideon, I want you to be my presence. I want you to be the one who represents my presence and my power to the people. Gideon just can't believe it. God, you're not with us, and I'm not valiant. Philip Yancey wrote a book several years ago. He made this observation. He said, doubt is the skeleton in the closet of faith. And I know no better way to treat a skeleton than to bring it out into the open and expose it for what it is. Not something to hide or fear, but a hard structure on which living tissue may grow. If I asked every person to stop reading, stop reading my book, whose faith has wavered, I might as well end the book with this sentence. It What he's observing rightly there is that faith and doubt are not incompatible. Faith and fear are not incompatible. When I feel fear, one of the stories I go back and read is Mark chapter 9, where a father brings his son to Jesus, and his son has probably epilepsy. He has seizures of some form. And during the seizures... Satan attacks the boy, and sometimes he throws himself even into the fire. And the father is desperate, and he brings his son to Jesus and says, Heal him, heal him, heal him if you can. And Jesus says, If I can, all things are possible to the one who believes. And the father says, I believe. 
sort of. I believe Jesus, but could you help my unbelief? Because, yeah, part of me really wants to say, I believe and do it. Just get on with it, Jesus. But then there's a part of me that's just pulling me back. I believe, could you bring the rest of me along? Hey, faith and doubt, faith and fear are not incompatible. God just says, take a step. When you are feeling fear, no matter what it is that God is calling you to, he's saying, just take a step. Gideon is fearful. He is doubting. Gideon is insecure. Verse 15. Gideon says to God, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. See, the tribe of Manasseh was the smallest tribe. And Gideon says, I come from the smallest family in the smallest tribe, and I'm the youngest. (laughs) I can't do it. I'm I'm not adequate. I'm not adequate for the job. Now, I, I remember very vividly, uh, I'm sure some of you ex- felt this experience as well, but I, I just remember it so vividly um, when we took our kids home from the hospital. And I felt it both times. Each time we, we took our kids home from the hospital, I remember just being amazed that the hospital would hand us a person, right? <laughs> you know, here, here's, your, here's your person, here's your human and, and you are responsible for this human now. Take your human home. And, you know, and I remember thinking, golly, you know, you got to get a license to drive a car. But here's just, you know, they didn't, there's no test. They didn't require that we read anything. It's not like you get training. You know, I mean, they gave us a little bit of training. They said, here's your human, feed it. Right? And then they sent us home. And I, 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 this is amazing. This is remarkable. You know, of course, we got a little more training than that, right? I mean, you know, a nurse comes in, but you don't hear anything because as dads, we've been working so hard, right? Cheering our wives on. We're exhausted. We're like, go, honey, go, honey. Oh, gosh, I'm so tired, right? So we don't hear, and we're not learning anything at that point in time. Get a little, you know, 30 minutes of how to take care of this human. And fortunately, family and friends step in and rescue and save the child, right, from the parents, <laughs> But, you know, even now, as our kids get older, I think nothing has made me feel more incompetent as a human being than being a parent. And the issues are getting different and they're getting more complex. And and I go, how can this be? I'm just a kid. I just feel like I'm just a kid. But I had a birthday a couple weeks ago and my my son, he said to me, literally, he said, Dad, you know, technically speaking, you're (laughs) middle-aged. I go, let me think about that. I I don't know. I feel like a kid. And I feel so incompetent in doing that, that task of raising a child. One of my favorite passages, Troy, quoted as he prayed, 2 Corinthians 3, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. The fact is, Gideon is not adequate for the job. He's a farmer, probably not a very good one. He's fearful. He is not a warrior. He has no military training. God is saying, I'm, I'm raising you up, and I'm going I'm to have you deliver your people from this band of marauding Midianites who come in and steal everything. Gideon is not adequate for the task. That's just a fact. But God can make him adequate. God can empower him. These are exactly the kinds of people that God wants. Not the ones who come and say, I'm so strong, I'm so mighty, I'm so powerful, I can do it. God, you're so fortunate to have me on your team. Again, here I am, 
What's next? No, God needs folks who come and say, God, I, I don't bring you anything, but I am available. I'm doubting. I'm fearful. I'm insecure. I'm inadequate, but I am available. And God takes those kind of people and he does mighty and powerful things through them. That's exactly what he does through Gideon. Gideon steps up. Gideon steps up. He, he obeys. Now, I would say his obedience is timid, but he does obey. Okay, continue reading with me in the story. Chapter 6 and verse 16. It says, But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, Okay, <laughs> if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. And he put the meat in a basket and broth in the pot. He brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and he touched the meat and the unleavened bread and the fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Wow. I want you to notice that the solution to Gideon's inadequacy is not that God all of a sudden makes him bigger, stronger, faster, and smarter. The solution to Gideon's inadequacy is the presence of God. That's what makes Gideon adequate. It's the presence of God. Now, have you ever wondered as you read this story, who was it exactly that showed up? Never crossed your mind? I have wondered that personally. I want you to look with me in verse 14 again. Judges 6 verse 14. It says, then the Lord looked at him and said, and that's Yahweh. Okay? It says, then Yahweh looked at him and said, go in this your strength, deliver Israel from the hand of Midian, have I not sent you? Go over in verse 22. When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Gideon was afraid that he would die. Why? Well, because he knew just enough theology to know that anyone who sees God dies. Okay? Moses was told that. I want to show you my glory, Moses, but no one can see me and live. So what I'll do is I'll tuck you into the cleft of the rock, and then I'm going to cover you up. In other words, I'm going to veil my glory from you. You'll see just a, a glimpse. Just a, you can see just a shadow of my glory. And that shadow was enough to cause Moses to glow the rest of his life. He saw just a, a glimpse of the glory of God. But anyone who would see the, the full glory of God would, would die. It would just be overwhelming. It would consume that person. And Jacob had the same experience. Remember when he was wrestling with the angel of the Lord, and at the end of which he says, I have seen God, and yet, remarkably, my life has been spared. Why? Because he just saw a, a glimpse. He just saw a shadow. Gideon is just getting a glimpse or a shadow of the angel of the Lord who is representing the presence of the Lord. In my opinion, this is the pre-incarnate Son of God. Okay, this is Jesus Christ before Jesus Christ became Jesus Christ. It's the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who took on the form of man 
periodically throughout Scripture to minister the presence of God in a way that wouldn't kill people, but would give them a glimpse of the glory and the power of God. And he did that because God's physical presence wouldn't be with Gideon all along, but he would have this memory that, you know, God's presence is actually always with me. Here he is. And so he has this memory that he goes back to and he remembers, no, God is present with me. And notice his response. He does two things. First, he worships. Verse 23 again, the Lord said to him, peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and he named it, the Lord is peace. To this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. The Lord is peace, the Lord is shalom, the Lord is the fullness of blessings. God can do this. He worshiped. First small step of faith. Then he takes another step of faith. Verse 25. Now on the same night, the Lord Yahweh said to him, take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father. Cut down the Asherah that is beside it. Remember, Baal was the male god. Asherah was his consort. These were the two primary pagan gods of the Canaanites of the land. Gideon's father has been worshiping them. He has his own personal household idols, his own personal temple. This is the family in which Gideon has been raised. And God says, Tear down the family idols. And on top of them, build an altar to the Lord. On top of this stronghold, in an orderly manner. Take a second bowl and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah. So cut up that that pole. That Asherah was made of a, a pole with phallic symbols on it. Well, cut it all up and burn it and use it to roast the meat. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and he did as the Lord had spoken to him. And because he was too afraid of his father's household... And the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. But he did it, okay? But he did it. Was he afraid? Absolutely. And in the next paragraph, we see that the men of the city came and they wanted to kill him. Because he had torn down, apparently his father was like kind of the local priest to Baal and Asherah. And you've destroyed our worship and they want to kill him. And his father seems to be cluing in and he says, look... Let Baal fight his own battles. If he's such a great God, then he can put my son to death. And he renames his son Jerob Baal. He fights against Baal. And no one touches him. It's, it's not perfect, but it's a step of faith. It's, it's timid, but it's a step of faith. He moves forward. Does he still have doubts? Well, sure. When, when he's called to go fight, he says... I need a couple more signs. Can I just one more sign? Can the fleece be wet? Can the fleece be dried? I, I need reassurance. But the point is he moves forward. And that's all that God calls us to do. Okay? So my challenge to you this morning is this. First, will you just take a step of faith? I, I don't know what God is calling you to do this morning. But probably most of you have a sense that there, there's something that's next that God is calling you to step into. Will you just take a step of faith? It might be fearful. You might feel insecure in doing so. It might be doubting, but just move. And then specifically, will you become a deliverer? Like Gideon, will you represent God to a rebellious culture? Will you step up in courage and speak the words of life, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you take us as we are. Again, this morning we consecrate ourselves as Gideon did, tearing down 
the family idols. We listen to the voice of your spirit and his, con- his conviction. And we consecrate ourselves again, uh, even in the midst of, of having misgivings and doubts. I pray that you would embolden us to move forward with you. Father, I thank you for the example of Gideon. I thank you uh, that he moved forward, even though it wasn't uh, always with bold courage, and yet it, he did move forward. And we pray, Father, that we would be similar people. I pray that you would not just grant us courage, but you'd grant us insight to know how it is that you're calling us to move forward. I pray, Father, particularly that you would give uh, this church body opportunities to share the freeing deliverance of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you.